This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. CanDo is navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by Katie Balls and the Financial Times' Stephen Bush. So today, Bridget Phillipson, the Shadow Education Secretary, has been given some announcements about Labour's plans for childcare. Stephen, for those of us who've been missing it, what she said? Uh, Not very much, to be honest. I mean, so actually, the the interesting thing about Labour and childcare is that Bridget Phillipson, the Shadow Education Secretary, keeps... You know, making interventions in the media, including in a very good interview with Katie uh, last week, week before, was it, Katie? Last week. Last week. In which essentially the Labour Party keeps saying we are going to have a childcare policy rather than actually having a childcare policy. Yeah, it feels a bit like the Marvel movies. Now, why are they, why are they doing this? This is actually a very, well, I think it's very interesting. It's a very interesting window into how oppositions and indeed government spending departments work more broadly, right? The spending department, in this case education, wants something. And the treasury, or in this case shadow treasury, Mm. is like, okay, but where are you getting the dough? We're seeing this playing out in the government with these various pay disputes. You speak to most of the spending department ministers and they're just like, yeah, energy costs are up. Public sector pay has been frozen for a decade in real terms. We have a recruitment problem. If you have a recruitment problem, you need to charge. You need to, you know, if you can't fill a post, you need to increase the ask, right? Then you speak to people in the Treasury and they not unreasonably go, uh, what tax rise does, you know, the, the health minister or the home office minister envisage we're going to have in order to meet these pay demands from the border force or teachers or, or uh, paramedics, et cetera, et cetera, or what have you? And essentially, the shadow education team thinks, in my view, correctly, and indeed the history of recent elections shows this is the case, that you've got to go into the election with a ambitious and serious childcare policy because the swing, sort of, the you know, there are swing voters of every age, but the swingiest bracket are people in their 30s and 40s who tend to have at least one of the following two caring responsibilities. They have childcare responsibilities or they have elder care uh, responsibilities, whether for elderly parents, aunts, uncles, you know, Uncle Tom Cobbley at all. And on the other hand, Shadow Treasury's position is, look, you can have a spending commitment. This is their message to all of the spending homes, provided you identify a switch spend, i.e. something else in your department that you want to be cut. This is one of the reasons why eagle-eyed watchers will have noticed that the Labour Party has spent the money from scrapping the Rwanda scheme quite a few times, because that is that is a thing that they don't think works. They think they think they can make the saving from it, and so they are. I think they've now nailed down that they're spending it on increasing more money to enforce and, and catch traffickers here in the UK. But um, essentially, some of the spending departments will basically say to you, "Well, there isn't anything in my department I think should be cut." You hear this a lot from people in the Shadow Home Office team. They go, well, we don't have a pol- enough police now. Uh, we've got a crisis in the border force in terms of recruitment now. We obviously have political issues and you know, we don't need to get into just yet on small boats. We can't cut any spending here. We clearly just need more going into the system. So treasure- Shadow Treasurer needs to find the money for us rather than them being like, find your money for them. And I think some of why we're stuck in these kind of perpetual childcare policy coming soon is because one of the things you do if you're a spending department and you want to pony out money either fake money from shadow treasury or real money from the actual treasury is you announce you you announce you're going to announce things until it becomes politically painful for um the government to say no right 
Robert Halfon's been doing a brilliant job with that over the last decade with the fuel duty freeze, right? essentially just making it so awkward for the government to go, <laughs> oh, no, by the way, th- this is going up, that it never goes up. Katie, when you spoke to Bridget Phillipson for that interview, she did want to kind of give this idea that Labour's the one with the ideas, that the Conservative Party has run out of ideas. I mean, how accurate do you think that is when it comes to tricky issues like childcare? So childcare, I think, as Stephen said, it is very vague. And whenever you get near what is this going to cost, you pretty much hit a brick wall. I think you have a situation whereby, specifically on childcare, where I think we get to wider labour issues, Bridget Phillipson is much happier talking about the country she's learning from. So you hear a lot about fact-finding missions to Estonia, to Australia... And therefore, you can glean a little bit from what those systems are currently doing. Mm. So in Estonia, the fact that early years is part of the system, so everyone can access it, rather than having separate things, that's something that I think you can join the dots to say a Labour government would like to do. One thing Bridget Phillipson said to me on childcare, for example, was if you look at Shulstar, one of uh, what she thinks is one of the triumphs of the Labour government, the last Labour government, she said it was very easy for the Tories to undo. So you want something which is more of a a permanent place in the system, which again, I think goes back to the Estonia model. And then on Australia, when we spoke just a week after she came back from Australia, obviously the Labour Party recently won an election. um, And I think Keir Starmer and those around him are paying quite close attention to what Labour did in that election as to what they can learn from it. Childcare was part of the retail offer there. Now, childcare was part of the offer from Labour when they went against the Liberals. But if you look at Labour's... Australian Labour's own document, their own analysis of uh, what went right for them in that election, what went wrong. I think the the biggest factor is ultimately the fact that you had a leader on the other side, the government leader, ScoMo, Scott Morrison, who was very unpopular. They cite Mm -hmm. that as a huge factor in their favour. And also the fact you had the Teal candidates, which then split the vote in some of these areas, that was a big factor. And therefore having a focused retail offer was important. I think that's something Labour's trying to learn from in terms of not announcing too much. And childcare was a factor. But I I think some of the reads recently, I've seen a few people say, oh, childcare's how Labour won the last won the election in Australia that to me seems wide of the mark I think it's pretty clear in this country that childcare is so expensive it could be a really live electoral issue and there are Tory MPs who are anxious that there isn't an offer from their side now this trust wanted to slash the ratios that was something which is is not happening and Rishi Sunak has, has stopped happening but you have a problem where Tory MPs who don't like the idea of slashing the ratios I don't think it's the best idea they still took issue of Rishi Sunak stopping the scheme because they're saying well you're stopping the scheme so what are you doing in its place to stop something and then put nothing there is problematic for any wing of the Tory party and then ahead of the budget next week um, we have a situation where um, there's you know there's a written statement suggesting that they're not planning to change much on childcare. so I think <laughs> By talking about this, Bridget Phillipson is succeeding in making Tory MPs anxious about the lack of what they're saying on it. But I think we're still some somewhere wide of the mark of Labour actually really managing to capitalise on this. There's also a rumour going around that there could, about this, you know, if there'd be a Labour reshuffle, there could be a job swap between Wes Streeting and Bridget Phillipson in terms of going to different departments. And um, so it's, you know, who gets to carry on with this in terms of taking the policy further. As for general Labour policy, we have a situation where Labour just are giving so little away in terms of retail policy. They want to talk about emissions. As a journalist, that is quite frustrating. Now, Stephen, tomorrow Rishi Sunak will be going to Paris to meet President Macron. What do we think is going to be on the agenda there? I mean, how long have you got? I mean, look, 
Not, not, not very long. But, but, <laughs> oh, I mean, ultimately, and this is actually, uh, in terms of positive legacies of the, this trust government, this is actually a meeting that was set in train un, under this trust, something that, the yeah, and obviously has been continued with the Windsor framework, the kind of unfreezing of, you know, we shouldn't forget in the first half of, you know, the relationship between the UK and France was has never been as good as it was in the Cameron mm. era. Very close on security, very close on counter-terror, close on a whole range of issues, some of which, of course, will still be current, ranging from China. Now, the, lots of people in the EU talk about de-risking rather than decoupling, right? Obviously, you know, well, we can all see that the US and China relationship is getting worse, not better. We've all seen some of the alarming noises coming out of the foreign ministry in China, and we all start to think, OK... Are we heading for some kind of confrontation? Obviously, the bulk of the Conservative Party is very sinosceptic. Rishi Sunak himself is less so. Mm. He is more European on that. So all of that will be on the table. Some of the kind of soothing of hurt feelings over AUKUS will be on the table, as, of course, will be small boats. Now, I think, you know, that the danger for, for Rishi Sunak with this summit is that small boats is the only thing that the UK media is going to talk about. Because despite what some people say, there's not like a button somewhere in the French presidential palace that you can press called stop the small boat. So all of all, all of Europe has a is 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 grappling with with a problem like the small boats mm. issue. Now the EU's solution to that, broadly speaking, has been to pay nations on its border a huge amount of money, sometimes to do quite horrendous things, you know, in Libya and Turkey, et cetera, et cetera. Now, of course, the problem for the UK is we are now a country on the EU's outer border. For a variety of reasons, the Libyan or Turkish option of just taking a lot of money from the EU to do their processing here is not on the table for Rishi Sunak. It's not politically or electorally survival. I also don't think it's socially desirable or, or would be humane to the people seeking to come into Europe for us to try and emulate uh, what we see on the European border on the Med here. But it's a big problem for him. It may spoil the whole whole meeting. But in many ways, I think the big thing that we're going to see in this summit will be a kind of... The thing that lots of people in the EU want is to repair the particularly the Anglo-French relationship, which obviously has got into a, a bad place, to kind of bank some of the gains from the Windsor framework, bank some of the gains from Liz Truss going to the first meeting of this European political community, and to really get those two countries back on the same page, particularly in terms of security, where they're where the close security and defence ties between the two countries are so important to both of their shared objectives, not least Rightly, we're all preoccupied by the war in Ukraine and we're worried about what might happen with the US and China. But we shouldn't forget that there is still a problem called jihadism and that is still a problem that France and the UK working together have done an awful lot to tackle internationally. Well, Katie, just on the small boats problem then, what do you think Rishi Sunak will be asking for Macron in terms of help? Is it on people smugglers mainly? Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting speaking to ministers is that the big focus this week has clearly been the illegal migration bill. But those of experience on the issue think that a deal with France and working with France is as important. I think some might say even more important than that bill. And especially if you think about change ahead of the next election. The legal migration bill is likely to get caught up in the courts. Mm. Even in a best case scenario, you know, you might get it operational and perhaps say you say it was operational in six months. All it is is a framework. 
is then a really tricky task to make it operational. We've spoken about some of the practical issues on the podcast this week. That falls to the Home Office of Ella Braverman to, to do that. So even even getting it to the point that it, it can be actioned is only one part of the job. There's still, I would argue, the larger part is still to go. And therefore, I think that, you know, one of the big things, so I think, is looking about how France intercepts small boats. So at the moment, uh, France says it intercepts about half of all small, small boats that leave its shores. The Home Office thinks that if you could get that figure to 75%, mm. it would break the business model of people traffickers. So that is ultimately seen as a large prize. We're talking about police patrolling the beaches, things like this. Lots of steps. Now, some of these things would require wider agreement from the whole of the EU to make it happen. And we have a situation to day where you have the European Commission criticising the legal migration bill. So the protocol has improved UK-EU relations, but now we have a new bill, which I don't think it is having as negative effect as the protocol is having, but it just shows you again more friction. So how does that start to influence the general the general uh, sense or the mood? Because this is supposed to be the big reset. I still think that is, is what... Uh, government hopes and believes it will be but does the small boats bill start to sour things to the point it's harder to achieve things i think what the eu leaders say compared to the european commission will be Mm. will be telling in the sense obviously eu leaders are grappling with lots of these migration issues themselves so like to be more sympathetic i think to radical action than the commission and you've had james cleverly the foreign secretary trying to lay the groundwork in recent weeks ahead of this bill to so try and avoid some of the diplomatic bastards you could get otherwise Although one European leader who does like the bill is Matteo Salvini, the Deputy Prime Minister of Italy. So I'm not sure Number 10 will be necessarily welcoming that endorsement. Um, and Stephen, not to steal Cindy's job, but while we have you here, I just wondered, we've been talking about Sue Gray at the beginning of the week. Do you think the Sue Gray appointment is going well for Keir Starmer or not? Yeah, of course it's going well. I, I, I'm afraid I do think this is one of those stories where, like, Occasionally in politics, political parties really lose the run of themselves, right? This has actually, I think, gone better than Labour could possibly have hoped, right? Because, like, broadly speaking, right, Boris Johnson had to resign because he could not agree with his chancellor, his second chancellor he couldn't agree with, on economic policy, and because his chief whip, sorry, his deputy chief whip, but also the person that everyone knew he kind of wanted to have as his chief whip, Chris Pincher, was implicated in various allegations, and the parliamentary party couldn't stand it. Rishi Sunak is the Conservative Party's best hope and best asset going into the next election and undermining his leadership, suggesting that maybe Boris Johnson can come back is literally the worst thing the Tory party could do to its hopes. And now we have a situation where some people are suggesting, oh, maybe this Partygate report, which, by the way, was claimed as an exoneration at the time. And actually, you know, Sue Gray did the classic thing that Sue Gray did in her time as the government's fixer, which was to, you know, downplay issues as much as she possibly could. So it's it's made the politics of navigating the Privileges Committee more difficult for Rishi Sunak. It's emboldened Boris Johnson's remaining allies in the Parliamentary Party, who most people in the Labour Party, most pollsters, would basically say are the Conservative Party's biggest threat and the Labour Party's biggest internal allies. And... Um, you know, they always knew they might have some kind of gardening leave process uh, inserted by a COBA. And he's broadly got what he wanted, which is, you know, someone who knows the government, who 
He knows a little bit from when he was at the DPP, but not all that well. He's got the kind of hire he wanted for the chief of staff role. So, um, no, I mean, I think it's gone pretty well, not least because actually the group of people who should be really angry about the Sue Gray appointment, in my view, are anyone who cares about government transparency, freedom of information, open government, I, lots of people who tend to be in the Labour Party. Because bits of the Tory party have started spitting their rusk out over this, the Labour Party is having a very tribal reaction to it, you know, defend our appointment, etc, etc. And I think that means some of the divides which this appointment could have caused of people going, oh, so are we going to be part of the sort of, you know, because she's someone who famously is very good at finding ways for the government to find legal routes out of its uh, FOI obligations. You can see how that appointment could have triggered a lot of internal arguments in the Labour Party about how Whitehall operates, you know, her CV as the government's fixer. Uh, so, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's gone as well as they could have hoped. Katie and Stephen, thanks very much.